Everybody, this week, Three Sides of the Coin, we sit down with Kip Winger. And all I can say is forget about those Winger stereotypes. This is a great interview. Some amazing discussions about classical music. Some amazing discussions about backing tracks. Yes. Amazing discussions about Kiss. And how does he record music in 2023 when so many other people don't care about recording music anymore? Fascinating. This is fascinating. This is Three Sides of the Coin. Talking all things Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Hey, Three Sides of the Coin. You got the two of us this week. You got Mike. You got Tommy. Two important ones. We also have an incredible guest coming up real soon. Kip Winger. And don't roll your eyes and go, stop. This is a pretty cool discussion. First of all, Kip is, he knows his music. He knows classical. He knows classic rock. Um, and he's very open about his career and and his views on creating music. I mean, this is a this is a pretty refreshing conversation we have with him. But before we get to that, Tommy, any comments you want to share from yeah, before our I, interview with Holly Knight? But before I well, I suppose it won't matter by this going live next week. But I thought maybe you could tell people why the Holly Knight um, episode started on Easter and how we're going to, we're rolling another one here later in the week. Well, yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're by the time you're listening to this, we released, everything will be out. We released two episodes in one week and the Holly night just took longer because I was traveling. I was in Minnesota, moving my mom into a senior facility. Um, So I just didn't have time, honestly, to, make it a priority to sit down and do all the editing and get it prepared. So it just got finished up and got released basically uh, a couple days before the episode where you and Mark reviewed the off the soundboard. Right. So the, the uh, comments I'm going to be reading now are all from the Holly Knight interview, but by the time you guys see this, then next week we'll be talking about the one where Mark and I review the off the soundboard. So Holly Knight, for those of you that are not aware, she is a composer and has written more hit songs than I can even count. Just watch the interview. It's fantastic. So uh, Aaron Mother Alamari said, this is a fantastic interview. I just discovered your channel and I'm very impressed. I've been a huge Kiss fan for over 40, 40 years and I learned so much, which is great. I love to hear that we got new people coming in and you're learning something. Uh, Nick Shade, great songwriter and seems to have an even it seems to be an even greater human being. Good guest. I would agree with that. Um, let me see. There's one on here that I wanted to read that I can't find now. Uh, uh, Wolf of Nature. Thank you, Holly, for your contributions to Kiss and the world, uh, the music world. And um, let's see. Jelly Jensen, just watched. I have to say, this is definitely my favorite episode of Three Sides of the Coin. You said that the Unmasked album grows through the years, and besides Dress to Kill, I spin it. I spin this one most out of all of the Kiss albums, at least a couple times a year. So that's really cool. You know, thank you guys for for tuning in. 
uh, and paying attention. We really appreciate it. We do read all the comments. Um, we try to respond when we can, but like Michael, he was helping his mom move into her new place and it just, it sucks up your life. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, we've always said, you know, for all of us on this show, our priority is family and work first. Yep. You know, we, we, we love what we do on this podcast, but we put family and work for recording and doing stuff. And we've all had to take off times and skip weeks because of various things. So and it is hope, what it is. And it's really important to me personally, speaking for myself, I hope you enjoyed this particular episode because to me, it was a fascinating conversation with an artist who really surprised me. And I thought it was really cool to hear about classical music and putting things together and talking about rock and all the stuff we do. So I hope you enjoy it. Yeah. You know, all I can say is don't let the winger stereotype that's been out there for decades cause you to not listen to this. Kip is a fascinating insight into the world of, of hard rock and classical music. We talk about, you know, how is it that he can record music now and so many other artists won't do it because there's no money to be made. He's very honest about what he feels about that. We talk about uh, what Kip thinks about people who have to use backing tracks. And he's, again, very honest about that. Even, even asked him, um, do you write music so you don't have to use backing tracks, so you don't need assistance? And his response to that was just spot on brilliant. So We got let, great questions in because Mark isn't here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, Mark wasn't here to offer up his services as a drummer for winger, but (laughs) yeah, just in case, you know, the drummer gets sick or something like that. You know, on, on those weekends when Mark's not out drumming for warrant well, yeah, or or pretty boy Floyd, when people want you, they want you. Yeah. Um, so, so let this roll Kip winger. This is a fascinating discussion Subscribe on YouTube, follow and rate us on Spotify, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Three sides of the coin. We're so honored. We are joined by Kip Winger this week. Kip, thank you for taking some time out of your day to to join us. Uh, Chat a little uh, Winger, chat a little Kiss, talk music. Uh, You know, just... Let's get this out of the way right up front. Paul Stanley was my go-to rock star idol, okay? Just saying. Nice. Well, we we will we will dig into that. We'll dig into Paul Stanley. We'll dig into Gene Simmons. You you as winger, you did sh- your first shows with Kiss were on the Hot in the Shade tour, if I recall. Is that correct? That, that was our only shows with Kiss. We Those were your only shows. Six months though. It was six months of that. I said that was. I said on Sunday and watch Paul Stanley wail every night. Unreal, man. That was an incredible tour. Not. I mean, Kiss, Kiss, as from Kiss fan standpoint, Kiss came like back. They were playing a classic set again and incredible stage and energy. But what made it even better was the lineup having guys like you and Slaughter on that tour was just it was just like a dream lineup in in the eyes of fans. What what was your experience on that tour? Well, here's what happened. We, we went in to make our second album. We were, we were supposed to put it out at a certain point. We delivered it to the label and they're like, you need more hits. 
And we were supposed to do, we were supposed to hit the mark with the kiss tour. We had to go back in the studio, record Can't Get Enough, Easy Come, Easy Go, and rejoin the tour later. So for for a small period of time, it was Kiss Slaughter and someone else. And Master then, Pussycat. And then we bumped Slaughter down to uh, the opening slot when we, we stepped in after when Can't Get Enough came out later. When you have a record put together like that, and then the studio says we need more hits, how do you take that? <laughs> they were right because the second album that I did, um, I was a bit of a brand dork. Like, I didn't realize that our first album like created the brand. I was saying, I thought, I think like a seventies guy. It's like, okay, what are we gonna do next? That's yeah. cool and more progressive and it's got more. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, I, I wasn't thinking, okay, what's our next Madeleine? You know, it was like I didn't think that way, and. and and so our the second record, first delivery was much more progressive. It had a bunch of more, way more progressive stuff on it. And they're like, no, nah, nah, we need the straight up stuff. And that was back in the day when the record company was like, <laughs> you know, we ain't putting your record out. See ya, you know. Nowadays, it doesn't matter. You do whatever you want. But um, they were right. Um, it was largely the call of Doug Morris, the, the head of Atlantic Records at the time, who's, who's just one of those guys that uh, is is uh you got to give him credit where credit's due he he picked a lot of winners um and so it was it was the right thing to do is is it is it a is it a bit frustrating though when they're like all we want to hear are radio hits radio hits radio hits not that there's anything wrong with that but you know as, as that's a day so far gone by that uh yeah i mean you know, the thing about our band is everybody was like, ooh, they're, they were a corporate put together band. Not true, man. I met Reb in the studio and we were just two punks that happened to get some gigs in Atlantic Studios. And then I got Alice Cooper and I met Paul and I was like, OK, I know this guitar player, you know, but we'd all done gigs in clubs forever. We were just a couple of, you know, we just be like rug rats and uh, happened to get some good studio gigs because we could play and sing. And, uh, you know, um, so we got that we got that rap like we were corporate and all that stuff, but it was total bullshit. We got signed on a favor, man. You know, it was like, and uh, MTV picked us up, and you know we hit, and the and the sound, our sound was refined because we were. If I had been, I'd written so many songs by that we were like very refined internally, you know, um, and when you put Reb's sound together with my thing, that that really created the sound of the band. So. You know, it's it's always annoying when you hear about stories about record companies commandeering the the career of an artist. And back in the day, sometimes it ruined the artist and sometimes it made the artist. So I don't typically believe in producers. I think that an artist should dig deep enough in themselves, learn enough skills, which they now they do. Kids, I know a kid who's 15 years old who makes, you know, recordings on an iPad that just are absolutely mind-blowing. So, you know, always never leave yourself at the mercy of anyone is basically the rule of thumb. And now it's much easier, you know, you can just do your thing and put it out in the audience as the judge. You don't have the middleman anymore, which is largely beneficial for the for the artistic population out there. It made it much more difficult for to, to get anywhere, but 
Um, I think it's uh, in general, it's a good thing. Well, you know, uh, I was going to ask since we're, we were kind of talking about albums and creating albums, I want to talk about your your new album. You've got a new album coming out on May fifth on Frontiers yeah, called Seven. I've heard the first two singles. I haven't heard any of it yet. Larry, sound, sounds amazing. Larry would say. Um, but I, I, my question to you is, how do you approach recording a new album now, 2022, 2023, versus any time back when there was a record label industry, a different music industry? Because as, as you've probably heard, there's many artists from the 70s, 80s onward that are like, no, we're not going to record new music. Why? Nobody's going to buy it. Nobody, we're not going to make any money off of it. How do you approach getting yourself excited to record new music in this different era? Man, that's, that's just what you just said is like all the wrong reasons to make music to begin with. You know, music is an emotional, uh, it's an emotional medium of art, you know, it's dealing in emotion. So if you don't, you know, if you don't have it in you to make music, then, you know, whatever. I mean, I, that's a double fold question. The first answer is I've always made records exactly the same. Sit down with a drum machine, write riffs with Reb. This is Winger speaking, not me. Right, personally, right. Because yeah. I have a whole other classical career. Yep. But um, sit down with a drum machine, write a riff, make a verse, pre-chorus, maybe no pre-chorus, chorus you know, jam some melodies, figure out what lyrics uh, match the emotion of the stuff and, you know, let it rip and come up with 10 of them that sound inspired uh, and not phoned in. That's the hardest part. Um, And I make music because I was put on the planet to make music. I just, I hear so much music. I'm replete with ideas. I'm worried I won't live long enough to get them all done, but I look at making albums as a way to connect uh, to the to the people who have been with us all this time and new fans to make an emotional connection, uh, whether it sells or not. Nowadays, you, you know, it's an advertisement to show up live because live is where bands make living make yep. a living now. But I, but people stream the music. I make money off streaming. It's not as much. We got. You know, it's 70, it's 30, like it's a 70, 30, like we, you're making 30% of what you used to, or maybe 20% of what you used to. So, uh, but that's never the reason to make music. The most exciting part of my life is creating music. So I, you know, you want to put it out for the people to connect to. Well, and people like me as a fan love that, you know, one of my favorite bands is Cheap Trick. And they just, the last three records or four records they put out have been absolutely unbelievable. And I would be really bummed if they didn't keep making music for us. And that's the thing. It's the wrong, it's the wrong, it's really a slap in the face of the fans to go, well, why should we make a record? We're not going to make any money on it. It's it's completely like, it's a big fuck you to the fans. It's like, you know, uh, know, uh, it's, it's buying into the, to the rock star thing. Like, oh, I, I'm so special, uh, you know, you should, I should make all this money to make a, a music. It's, this is really not what art is about. That fucks up art. In yeah. My, right. When I, when I make 
and I consider myself an artist, not so much an entertainer, um, because like I said, I have a whole nother quadrant of stuff that I do. But for me, it's like I, I do my best work when it's not for money or for a deadline or anything where I'm just I can solely listen to the voices and go this. And it's always inevitably the thing that connects the most to people too, because it's the most honest and it's the most genuine. It's, you know, and there's no contrivancy and, you know. But it's gotta feel good with the success you've had over all these years that you can play these shows and headline and have a lot of people show up to see you. And you still have that really intense support by fans. I, I've seen it, gosh, I think I photographed you at least a half a dozen times in the last five years. And every single time I go, there's always a huge group of people that show up that sing along to every song. It doesn't seem to matter which ones you do. That has to help you a lot to keep you wanting to connect and and make music. Well, sure. I mean, if you if you showed up to gigs and then nobody ever came, it would be like, well, why? You know, like, well, first, economically, it wouldn't be viable, but right. It's, it's yeah, it's inspiring. And, and rock music is a visceral thing. You have to be in connection to the audience because it's a marriage between the band and the audience. I mean, that's that's what right. it is. But in, but. Um, uh, there was another part of your comment that I wanted. to. Well, just about how it, it you, you have look because, OK, you have the luxury to me because of your ability to write songs and all of the hits you've had for have someone that's maybe even someone who's just a casual fan that knows the stuff to come and want to see you. I don't believe that that's the case with some of the other bands that I see that play, especially on festivals that have reformed after 40 years, for instance, and you can't name one single song that they do. And it, it would seem to me that you're, you're fortunate that you are gifted enough to have created the legacy you have. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It seems like people are more willing to listen because of your track record. Yeah, maybe that's true. I, I feel very blessed at the, at the opportunities we've had. Um, also, having said that, you know, we got, we got the shit kicked out of us in the early 90s. And there is somewhat of a feeling of loss of what we could have really become had we come out like you know, th three or four years earlier. But um, I'm happy with, you know, what we've got. And, and, and the way it happened was the right way because of everything else that was set into motion in my life, you know, but <clears throat> it's cool to be able to play nine or 10 hits in your set. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I mean, that's a luxury a lot of people don't have. Right. How, how, Kip, how have you been able to keep the original members of Winger together. So that's funny. that that is such a rarity amongst pretty much nearly any band you name out there. At least one person at some point has been replaced. You've still got your original four guys. Because we're friends. We have a great time. It's like I would never do this if I was in a fight with Reb. I'd be like, you know what? Like for what whatever, dude. Like, let's just hang this shit up. Um because you know i'm not in it for the bread um i have plenty of stuff to do without it we have a great time we have a everyone in the band's really funny particularly reb and um we're somewhat self-deprecating so it's it quite funny to be on the road with us um 
I mean, we just really, you know, we never got any legal battles. We're really in good, you know, we're just good friends. I mean, you know, we call each other all the time when we weren't playing, we were still like all talking to each other all the time, supporting each other. I, I was, I, you know, I made the call for Reb to get in Alice and I, and I, and I helped him get in Whitesnake and, um, you know, we help each other and we've just been friends. I mean, that's it very, and, and by the way, like each guy in his own right is, is quite powerful t musically and talent wise. So it's quite the it's quite an honor to be in the band, you know. It's 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 definitely not Kip Winger and the band. I mean, it's it, just because the name is Kip is, is Winger. I didn't want the name of the band to be Winger. It was a band. It's always been a band. So you know, uh, you know, we just get along, which is great. I mean, so then what what do you what do you think when you see stuff in the press, say for instance about like what's going on with Motley Crue right now and Mick Mars? It's sad. Yeah. It's, it's sad. You know, there's a lot of, I think money changes people, man. You know, I've seen that happen so many times, you know, money is, if there was no money involved, none of it would be happening. Right. I mean, right. Think, think about it. Like everyone wants a stake in the bread, man. You know, so it's yeah. like money when and ego, you know, I don't know the story really. And I'm, I don't know any of the guys individually. Uh, I thought Motley Crue had a couple cool songs for sure, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that. Well, I, when, when, I was going to say real quick, when, when you see something like that, does that make you go, well, gee, maybe those guys, whether it's Motley Crue or any other band that's going through stuff like that, they're not really friends. They're just business partners trying yeah. to deliver a product. Yeah, because each one of them will go out and make several million dollars, you know, Um but I, I still tell you, like, if I if I hated Reb, I wouldn't do it. I mean, I just wouldn't do it. Life is too short to be on a hate machine, you know, like, right. Not into it, man. Like, look at Def Leppard, you know, they are the original members minus one because the, the other guy died. Right. I mean, right. Right. And so, you know, they're a good example. Like, they're all super cool. They're they're good friends. You know, like you, too. It's the same thing. Like. I'm sure it's because they all respect each other and they're and they're friends and they have a good time. I mean, uh, I was sad when the drummer for Aerosmith left, and I'm sure it was just some money bullshit. I don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and also as a fan How too. How like, do you need to be happy? Like you know, you know what I mean? Right, right. I mean, it's like if I had ten million dollars, I'd be living in France, like sipping uh, cappuccino on the Champs Elysees, writing string quartets, man. You know. <laughs> $10 million is nothing to Steven Tyler. Like, so, you know. Right. Well, and, and, but obviously it sounds to me like it's a lesson you learned already a long time ago that your peace and your happiness is more important than a lot of the other crap that goes on. Yeah. And, 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 and like I said, I've got a whole other kettle of fish to fry. Like right. I'm, on, I'm on a quest writing uh, classical music and um, I'm ha I've had a lot of success at it, which is, totally unusual but it's comes very naturally and uh i'm wondering if i'll live long enough to get all the ideas done like i said earlier yeah well let's 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 chat a little bit about your your classical, classical. career how did it start i want to know how did this happen um was in a, raised in a band with my two brothers by my parents who were in a jazz band um took piano lessons at five but was self-taught learning all the 70s shit up until I was about 16 doing, you know, Grand Funk, Black Sabbath, Led Zeppelin. 
And then at 16, I, I, cause we were good, you know, we really, we learned rush and stuff like that. And I was 15 playing, you know, 21, 12 and stuff. And, uh, I wanted to study more. So I studied classical guitar from this cat named Sam Guaranacha at the University of Denver. I was 16 and I got a little ear for Baroque music and I was kind of like, I was really into performing, totally into David Lee Roth. And my brother and I had done karate and uh, I had a girlfriend who wanted to take ballet and, I, and none of her friends would do it with her. And I was like, I'll try it. So we go into the ballet studio and I hear like, Rachmaninoff, Tchaikovsky, Debussy, Stravinsky coming out of the, you know, like studio and they're in there with their legs up to here and like, it's really artistic and cool, you know, it's like ballet gets a bad rap for people that don't understand it. I mean, it's very difficult, you know, it's like a, it's really a thing, you know, and, and I, and we started taking classes and I was like hooked and she was like, I was like way better than her and she got pissed and split and we broke up. <laughs> I, uh, I got really into it and stayed and I was like kind of became into a company and dan and then it was just this music that's like and I started listening to like Debussy and Ravel just impressionistic music and thinking who the fuck wrote this like a human being wrote that you know how did that happen and I just started listening, avid listener, really into it, never thinking it was in my reach, just thinking, well, that's something to aspire to in another lifetime, basically. And, uh, and then I moved to New York when I was 22. I took some composition lessons from a cat in, in New York. It was, you know, I studied some classical stuff and then started kind of getting into it, but never really had you know, not enough time, Wing, uh, got an Alice Cooper, winger hit, still listening a lot. And then um, being really fascinated with, like if you listen to early, like Rainbow and the Rose, like I did, there were some deeper arrangements in there where I was like, you know, pushing the envelope and stuff for us. And, uh, and then when the grunge thing hit and I was out in New Mexico, I moved to New Mexico the grunge thing hit. I was the geek on Beavis and Butthead, like couldn't get a gig, lost my deal, lost my publishing. My first wife passed away in a car accident and I was sitting in New Mexico going, what the fuck? You know, it was, it was a very dark time. I was, and I was thinking, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go for it now. I'm going to, so I'm going to, I'm going to learn the language of the music I've been hearing for the last 15 years. And so I found a composition teacher, Richard Herman at the University of New Mexico and hit the books with him for a while. And then uh, he introduced me to post-tonal music and a, a lot of traditional counterpoint stuff like that. Then I moved to Nashville and I was in a concert and I heard a string trio by this cat named Richard uh, Michael Curick. And I was like, I wanna write like that. And I, and I was like, and he was sitting right over there. <laughs> and so, and he was a composition teacher at Vanderbilt. And so I introduced myself and said, I'm going to study with you. And so he, so I signed up for the adult extension course at Vanderbilt, took composition from and wrote this piece, Ghosts, which later became a very successful ballet with San Francisco Ballet, choreographed by the great Christopher Wielden, uh, who now is like the double Tony winning legendary choreographer of all time. Um, and met the conductor, Martin West, 
uh, at San Francisco Ballet Orchestra who, who, who said, let's make a record. You know, and I had written the second piece called Conversations with Dijinsky, and, and we made a record at Skywalker Ranch with Leslie Ann Jones engineering on and producing the album. Leslie Ann Jones did like all the George Lucas films. I mean, it was amazing. Oh, wow. Okay. We did that at Skywalker Ranch, and, and, uh, and, uh, I got nominated for a Grammy in contemporary classical composition that year in 2017. And which uh, probably blew your mind. Totally blew my mind. Totally unexpected. But it was like the ultimate vindication for all the people that think I suck. You know, it was like, all right, well, well I, don't know, I don't know anybody else that did that. And so then I, I, I uh, got a big commission with Nashville Symphony and, you know, it goes on and on from there. Well, I, I have a couple of questions with insight of what you were just saying. So the first one is for all of our listeners who are like myself and Michael, we're not musicians. We just appreciate music. I understand the concept of sitting down, what you were saying earlier with a drum machine and, and working out a song. How does it differ when you're writing a classical piece of music? How do you know even where to start? Is that part of what you were saying, the hitting the books thing? What exactly does that mean? Well, you know, hitting the books, you know, it's funny that you ask me that because I, I always seek out mentors and in every interview I do, I'm like, go get a mentor, no matter what it is. If you're doing interviews, Go talk to Walter Cronkite. God bless him. He's not alive anymore. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, get right. mentors are where it's at, you know. And so, you know, I was seeking a new mentor. I've, I've studied with some pretty badass dudes. And there's another guy who I, who I really love. His name's Aaron Kernis. I love his music. And I haven't been able to take any lessons from him yet. And I emailed him and I was like, man, I was thinking maybe I should just go back to school. And this is like, you know, eight months ago. And he's like, man, music theory is overrated. Now, don't quote me on this. And Aaron, if you're listening, if you ever hear this, I know that you know everything there is about music theory and that you're not telling people not to learn music theory. But but the point was, is that, um, you know, when you hit the books, it's really just to learn. It's like learning French. You know, you have to learn all the grammar and all the stuff so you can put a sentence together. And there's things in classical music that you need to know, like what the aperture does on an oboe if he goes, you know, um, and the transposition of a French horn and stuff like this. Wow. So there's language to it. Having said that, that is not what writing classical music is all about or any music. That's just about going, oh, I hear this thing. You know, like, oh, what do I do with that? I'll put that in the horns. You know, and that's how it that's how it comes. And it's the same for me with rock. It was just a, a matter of in rock music, you're like, well, okay, I need a riff, so let me grab my bass or guitar and and it's all like kind of it's kind of like I, I don't want to use the word limited, but it is limited to the fretboard and and kind of like what really works as a riff and this kind of thing. In classical music, like the sky's the limit, really. Because you can layer and layer and layer. Um, and you just because you can fray with all the instruments involved, you can you can you can exponentially create way more um, images, uh, you know, the, the uh, melodies uh, framed in, a, in many more ways than you can, like in a in a in a in a band with two guitars, bass and drums and. But to answer your question directly, you know, I'll sit down at the piano and come up with a little like, uh, 
you know, idea, and it could be a rhythm idea, it could be a melody idea, it could be anything. And sometimes it's all different things. Any, any artist that you ask will say the same thing. A painter will go, well, I had these two colors that I loved, or I just accidentally hit my brush across the thing. And, you know, it just kind of goes like that. But in a song idea, I might hear a melody like, you know, I want to do, 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 you know whatever and then you know uh or a classical thing like and then you sit down and try to figure out what the fuck you're hearing and it's all about what you're hearing and so what's happened to me over time is that i find that working with an instrument gets gets in my way i i sit down at the keyboard and i'll fuck around with it and then I'll walk away because walking away is the is the is the way that I can actually like, you know, free up my mind, you know, so. And by the way, I'm talking about after having done 20 years of study, you know, like, yeah. you know. Uh, but it's interesting to hear this because we've never had and we've been doing this for 10 years. And this is the you're the first guest we've had on that has a classical aspect to their career so yeah. it's fascinating to me to hear how how you do these things because it to me it's such an abstract concept from you know rock music or pop or whatever you want to call it to that that it's like it's interesting to see how you bridge that gap and does it make it now that you've been doing all this um training and writing all of this classical music when you come back and go okay we're going to do another winger record i'm going to do a solo album that's a rock oriented record do you have to pull your head out of that space and go okay now i've got to think in a different way because this is creating something different or do they play together they play together and and it's because music the difference between one genre and the other is short form to long form Okay. Short form music, you know, writing a song, you'll have, you'll have a, like a riff, say, just classic, like, could be, you know, Black Sabbath, Hole in the Sky, so you got that little, little phrase, and you got to, in that, and you got to like compact it into four minutes, and you got to like, okay, I need a melody, I need words, and all this stuff has to converge in this one space, it's got to, and it's got to say everything intelligently, in this in this small little space with classical music you'll have the same maybe not exactly the same maybe a little longer phrase but even in some cases a shorter phrase like you know so it's like a long form and you you're trying to take a take a short musical phrase and make it 20 minutes you know much more difficult much more i would think so absolutely do, do, Kip, 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 when when you're when you're writing for classical, do you have to understand all of the instruments that could be part of the composition? Oh yeah. You personally, you have to know oh, yeah. how how to play them because oh, yeah. it seems to me that that complicates it much more. I mean, in in a simple rock and roll world, it might be three or four instruments. Classical, you you know, it's you unlimited. To, you don't have to know how to play them. You just have to know how to speak the language. Like I won't be able, I can't play an oboe, but I can tell the oboe is to, I want this and this and this because I know what the instrument's capable of. You know, I can't play them all, but I know that a French horn can do what it can do. 
know. So, you so have, then when you chart it out, then do you also then go to that musician and say, here's what I'm thinking in this spot? You right now, I mean, you there's articulations in a score that you can very succinctly articulate everything you're hearing. And then when you get it in front of the orchestra, a player might go, hey, man, did you mean it? There are some things like, did you mean it like blah or did you mean it like, duh? you know, there's some very subtle things. You might have a discussion with with an instrumentalist about the way in which you want something to be played because the articulation falls short. Yes. And what you're saying is th th this is the difference between the majority of film composers, because a lot of film composers don't, quote, orchestrate their own stuff. They write kind of the melodies and stuff, and then they hand it off to the guy that knows all the articulations and can orchestrate very well, and they leave it to that. So it's kind of like a group effort, you know, but, but in my mind, and in the classical world, in the legit classical world, like you, you know, you kind of, you know, orchestrating your own music is is part of the composition. You know, it's like you have to do it all to be really legit in 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 my mind. Not not legit music, but just if you're a legit composer is going to know everything about what they're putting on the page, you know, and it's not going to come from from two different sources, you know. Well, and I'm assuming that the classical world is so different than the rock world. You can have a fresh start and do whatever you want. You're going to be judged on the merit of what you write and score versus anything else. Or was it tougher to break into classical because you are known as a rock artist? It, it, both. It was like there was some prejudice preceding me in some ways, thinking that I was going to walk in with like, bad film music super simple like not knowing my chops not understanding what the or you know what what the instruments can do and stuff but that lasted that didn't last long because once they figured out that i know what i'm doing and my scores are legit and that that a lot of them couldn't even you know like you know my rhythms are more different you know they can't they're it's it's not easy music you know yeah uh, I don't know, just to give you an example, I don't know if you've heard any of it, but. Uh, no, I have not, but I will listen. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, there was a little prejudice. On the other hand, I, uh, I did experience like, wow, this is really cool. You're coming in from a whole different world, you know? Um, and so how that's really unique. And so they were, you know, open arms in terms of, you know, having somebody come in that wasn't just academia driven, you know, where I just kind of came in from somewhere else. Um, did uh, you, ex did, did, um, hold on a second. So, you know, just this, like, oh, wait, what happened? We're here. We got you. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Like, for example, why does it not do it? That's weird. Hmm.
So, you know, that's the kind of. That's uh, cool. It sounds epic. Like I was imagining as I was listening to it, like any number of things from a car chase in a movie, you know, to it, it felt very dramatic. So. Very urgent sounding. But if you listen to the next part, like this could be a, a rock riff. You know, you know, that's cool. So, yeah, I, no, it's it's just I think it's fascinating to me. Um, did, did, did you wait? So after you did your class started working in classical, did you have pushback from the rock world of like now he's classical? Is he not really a rock a rock star? Is he not really metal anymore? Well, I've never, you know, been, I've never been one or the other. We've always fallen into the cracks. I've always gotten more prejudiced against, like, you know, one side or the other. Uh, a lot of people think I'm a poser. A lot of think I'm like a great musician. There's like I'm, I'm like, like, I'm like a little bit of all of it at once. So people don't know totally what to make of it. But the, 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 in general, no. I've actually turned on a lot of people to classical music that were never into it before. I'd get a lot of messages on social media like oh my god i never knew i could feel this much i went to the symphony tonight and i heard rachmaninoff and it was like oh my god i had no idea that this was even out there so you know i feel like i'm the ambassador for rock musicians to check out the classical world because you know when you think about it electronic music didn't even start happening till the 40s and 50s it's like you know, before that, the rock music was Beethoven and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, so I'm kind of like here to point out to people, hey, you know, look over there, you know. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Well, so then going back to everything you had said earlier that you felt like if, if Winger would have just gotten started three or four years before, earlier, that you might have been able to do a lot more than what you were able to accomplish at that time in your career simply because of the changing landscape. But I want to know, how do you think grunge affected you as well as all of your other contemporaries? And then what was the whole thing with the whole Beavis and Butthead? Why did they, why did they choose winger versus a myriad of other bands that they could have, you know, stuck the sword in the ground on? Yeah, you know, it's funny that everybody asked me that question, but but it's always it's the question is to ask Mike Judge. Like he would be the guy to answer that. I have no idea. Um, the grunge thing happened very simple. El, when the beat when Elvis was cool, the generation after the kids in high school that liked Elvis, we were like, we need our own music, the Beatles. And then after that, it was like, yeah, fuck that, Led Zeppelin, they're way heavier. And then after that, it was like, hey, disco, this rules. And then disco sucked, so let's go with, you know, Sid Vicious, you know. That just shit just happens nonstop. And so the 80s happened, and and uh, and then the, the, the younger, the, the junior highs that came into high school were like, fuck this, we need our own, our own music. Here comes Kurt Cobain to sing their anthem for them. I mean, that's real simple. And then all of a sudden... The kind of music we were doing, you know, it was uh, oversaturated and people were, you know, it was just finished. I got singled out for who knows what reasons. I mean, probably because you were handsome. Maybe. You know? I mean, I don't yeah. know. But I, I mean, I was quite the ham. Um, I, I talked to Steve Vai about this a few times. Like, 
Steve is a very literate classical composer. And Steve is one of the only other guys I know that can like marry the two worlds. But he's also a self-admitted ham. He likes to wear, you know, audacious rock star clothes. And then, and by the way, his guitar playing is like, you know, no one can touch him. So it's kind of like, you know, and I was just kind of like, you know, I was like, you know, Paul Stanley, look at what he wore. I didn't wear anything. Yeah. It was like, gee whiz, I only had like a shirt and poof my hair. He went all out, you know, David Lee Roth, all these guys. And so I was just kind of following suit for my heroes. And, you know, I just was in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think. Well, yeah, because I think at that, I think also too, from a fan's perspective, I think part of the demise goes beyond just saying it's grunge. I, I think that some of it was, it felt like the record labels were no longer, or maybe probably never did. The minute anyone had a hit, like say use Guns N' Roses, because they were so different than maybe a lot of other bands at that moment when Appetite came out, because it was such a big success, then all of a sudden the labels weren't at least from my opinion, they weren't just picking you because you're a good songwriter and you wrote good songs and you could be a great band. They were picking anyone that sounded just like Guns N' Roses because we're going, okay, well, if we got one, we can get five more. Or or looked, just looked, looked like them. Whatever, yeah, and it just got so diluted. And I see yeah, that. I mean, that's, that's, you know, like Amazon does that. If they have an independent seller that's like, that nails, a, that nails an item that's selling a bunch, they'll make their own and then, and start selling off. their own and then they'll kick the guy off of uh, Amazon. You know, I mean, that's just, yeah. that's just business, you know, corporate business. I mean, that's just how it goes. You know, when you go ahead, Michael, I was, well, you can follow up. Cause I wanted to go back okay. to um, the hot and shade tour when you're done. Yeah. Tommy. Oh, I, well, I just wanted to know growing up because you obviously have been exposed to so many different types of music growing up with your family being in jazz and all that. If I said to you as a teenager, or even now looking back at older songs or older records, if you had to pick five of your all-time favorite records, what five would you choose? I was just asked that question today, so I don't know. If Dang I should... it, I'm trying to be creative here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, well, you know, it's really, I mean, I gave the answer earlier, and I and I have like 15 of my top records, so I could rotate them in the top five, but like, I was really heavily influenced by Alice Cooper. Luckily, I got into his band, so I mean, Billion Dollar Babies would be right at the top. Um, Tubular Bells, side two, man. Mike Oldfield, yeah. That was some heavy-duty shit. Um, uh, there's a record, but you know, Joe Walsh solo record, Smoker You Drink, Player You Get. Yep. Um, and I'm not talking about Rocky Mountain Way, like everything after it, Kenny Passarelli on bass and, and uh, um, uh, fuck, what's his name? My good buddy, the dr Joe um, on drums. Oh, my God. I hope he doesn't see this. Oh my God. We'll block him from the the page. Yeah, he's one of my great friends, incredible drummer. He co-wrote that song, uh, Mind Block. Anyway, um, there's a record by a pianist, a Swedish pianist named Roland Pointemann that plays the music of Eric Satie, and it's called Eric Satie, 50 Essential Piano Pieces by Roland Pointemann. Now, Satie's music is very simple, but there's a tone within the, the frequency within the music. 
that absolutely resonates with my soul. And I listen to it almost every day to calibrate. Like I'll get up in the morning early. I sit in my chair, look out the window. I'm on the 19th floor. I look out the window while I'm drinking my protein shake. And I, I uh, listen to that album like every morning. See, and, that's uh, cool. And uh, that calibrates me. Then I would, you know, I, uh, I didn't say this one earlier because I forgot about it. Broadsword and the Beast by Jethro Tull. Oh, interesting. Okay. Unbelievable album. Uh, how many did I give you? That was, I don't know, four or five. That was good. Yeah. I just wanted to get a feel for how sometimes I feel like when we interview different artists, when we hear a little bit about stuff that they listened to growing up and things they still love, it helps people understand more where you came from. Anything Grand Funk. Aimless Lady. Yep. I think the bass player. Mel Shocker, Grand Funk, Dennis Dunaway, Alice Cooper, Getty Lee, and I mean, Kenny Passarelli for sure. Those guys. Paul McCartney, obviously. You know, yeah, well, yeah. Paul McCartney. He's, my, he's the one guy I want to meet Paul McCartney. Well, who doesn't? Not that mean anything to him, but uh, I mean, imagine being Paul McCartney. Like, I influenced every musician in the world. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I mean, fucking yeah. imagine like outrageous yeah and, and and there's so many of the younger people now that have no idea that paul mccartney was ever in the beatles unreal and and, and to me that like see i have older brothers and sisters so i took all of their records so i grew up on 50s and 60s stuff and the beatles and the rolling stones were like cornerstones for me you know, and I don't know how you can love music and not at least appreciate what those bands have brought to modern music. Totally. But, you know, the young kids, they like Jay-Z. So Kip, Kip, Kip before, before we, before we wrap up here, I want to pick your brain, get some, some memories of touring on the hot in the shade tour. You know, what was it? What, what, you know, did, did you learn anything from Gene and Paul? Did they offer you advice? What was that experience like being out there with them? Gene Simmons came into our dressing room every night to tell us the joke we told him the day before. <laughs> <laughs> and he told it like it was like the fresh thing. I mean, God bless him. <laughs> Very intelligent guy. He talks a little bit at you, not to you, but... Um, uh, I love Gene Simmons. Um, he's a very kind soul, actually, in the, in the end. Um, yeah. and, and he's right about a lot of shit. And Paul Stanley, just, it's hard for me to judge Paul Stanley because he's, he's, he's like, you know, uh, such a hero of mine, you know. And, uh, and it was Bruce Kulick and Eric Carr, right? So Eric was yeah. a sweetheart. Bruce is still a good friend of mine. So... Um, uh, you know, one thing we learned, one thing I'll tell you as a band we learned right off the bat was come out slamming because we started that tour. It was our second album. We started that tour with the song In the Heart of the Young. Now that song starts, it doesn't even start. It's like, da -da -do -da -ba -da -da. there's a fire. Like, and the audience is like waiting to rock. And we're like, you know, and like, man, we're like, man, this fucking doesn't work at all. Like, uh, 
Now, I think Gene said something to us. He's like, man, you guys got to come out rocking. You know, second night we come out with a rocker, like it's all okay. You know, um, was, was the Kiss audience a tough audience to play to? No, because we were very popular at the time. And People the, were excited to see you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you know, we had to live up to it. I mean, it, you know, it's not an easy, it's not an easy band to open for, you know. Um, by the way, the Easy Come Easy Go video is their hot in the shade, hot in the shade set that they let us rent from them when the tour was over, and we just like flipped the lighting gear upside down and made a set out of it. Oh, interesting fact. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but mostly, I just remember sitting on side of the stage, like, and I got to ask Paul uh, Paul Stanley like all my favorite questions, like where you know, you know just like what was it like recording detroit rock city with ezra and like how did that all go down you know so i got to hear all that kind of stuff and and i have to say they were really genuinely cool people i mean it wasn't I mean, there's no assholes like i still haven't met any assholes in the business like the most famous guys are always like the most real nice guys so um it's amazing how that works out it is great man um we were really lucky to be on it for so long yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you played in front of a lot of people that had to have pushed your stock up. Yeah, it was good, man. It was good. Uh, well, in touring with Winger, though, then give us one of the biggest Spinal Tap moments you've had. Oh, God, there were so many. First, first, <laughs> first gig we played. Okay, so Winger never did a live gig, a live paid gig ever before we went on tour with the Scorpions. We got our, we put the band together. We did, wow. we did the record. We rehearsed. Each guy was in, you know, I was in Alice with Paul. Rev had played a million gigs on his own. Rod was in the Dixie Dregs. So it wasn't like we didn't know what to do. We just right. never went out and played clubs. First gig was opening for the Scorpions, 10,000 people at uh, in Minneapolis, I think it was. And uh, we get out there, song one, Rev's amp blows up. And like, and I was, that was before I knew what being a front man even meant. So I'm like talking to the audience, like I'm ordering breakfast, like uh, <laughs> a brand muffin, you know, and then, and then the scorpions were like, who are these guys? They suck. Get, you know, get rid of them. And uh, a couple of days of watching Klaus mine, you know, it's like, okay, that's what you do. Like, you know, steal a few of his chops and you know, go out there and, and, the, and the crowd goes wild. But, um, you know, we've had a lot of Spinal Tap moments. One time we were in Spain and the agent stole all the advance money and didn't pay the bus company. The bus the bus driver kicked us off in a truck stop in Spain and just drove off. I was like, see, you, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, God, I mean, we, we there's a million of those. Well, wow. let, 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 let's talk a little bit about your okay. upcoming album, Seven. You know, so it comes out May 5th on Frontiers. Um, talk to us. What 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 can people expect from a new winger album? It's very inspired. All original members played on every single song. So it's a very unique album in that way. No other winger album did all the original members play on every single track. Really? Really? Right. And so <laughs> and so this is really like the quintessential winger album. Uh, best singing I've ever done by far. Um, and how do you judge that for yourself? 
just because, you know, you'll listen to it and go, whoa, the singing's great. I mean, I really, really worked on it, you know. I just really, and the songs are, uh, they're singers' songs. I don't know why that is. I think just in the way I wrote them, uh, it was, uh, I don't know, I'm very happy with the vocal tracks um, compared to the other stuff I've done. Um, Paul Taylor has a guitar solo for the very first time on this album, on a song called Broken Glass. One song co-written by John Roth, two solos by John. Most of the stuff is written by Reb and me. Um, uh, and we went back to the original logo because I was like going for the inspiration of the first record, like that initial winger spark and combine it with the depth of everything that followed, particularly after the pull album and beyond. And so it's got a darker tone to it but it's got a, a reminiscent feel of the energy of the first album. And then you're touring throughout the summer and you are on tour for a while with um, Kiefer, correct? Yeah. So we're, we're, we've got a lot of weekend shows, but then we go to UK with steel Panther. Oh, that's right. The Panther. Yes. Uh, we're doing a, we're doing the summer with Tom Kiefer, not the whole summer, but uh, quite a bit of it. And, Australia, Japan in uh, September, looking to go to uh, South America at some point towards the end of the year. But then there's a lot of stuff filled in between. You know, it's from festivals, M3, uh, Monsters of Rock tour next, uh, this month. And uh, lots, lots, of, lots, of, lots of playing. I mean, vocally, I'm quite terrified because it's 61. I can still do it. Um, but it's not like a guitar where you just go down, 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 and you're like, okay, I'm good to go. You know, you never know what's coming out. You know, you hit the, hit the, you, you see a lot of singers in the older ages, they can't really do it anymore. You know, um, I can still do it, but um, honestly, there's a few nights here and there where it's like, you know, I'm a bit Ethel Merman until I get the machine up and running, you know. But, well, uh, you know, Kip, what what what's your opinion on on artists that would use backing tracks to help boost the vocals that they can't hit anymore? I wish I had the balls to do that, but I can't bring myself to do it because I'm so old school. We don't do that. I feel like, you know, I was on the Monsters of Rock tour and there was a there was a, a, a Scandinavian band. And they were like, and the, and so they cut their their set was too short, and they were like, "You got to play a couple more songs." They're like, "We can't. All the tracks are done." You know, it's like, jeez. Uh, oh, Eddie Eddie Trunk is famous for frowning on that hardcore. So yes, I don't, I don't feel like I can ever do tracks because my good buddy Eddie will disown me, man. And the, my friendship with Eddie's more important than having vocal background tracks, but. Um, but I, on a serious note, I mean for me it's important that like we're really doing it you know what i mean like because there's yeah. so many guys out there that got the pro tools running in the background um, i mean for for an occasional sound effect that's cool like you can't recreate it or something but when the guys are singing backgrounds and the bass is on tape like all the bands we know that do that i mean it's 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 i don't know man i mean i don't want to like you know, I just, I just don't feel that we'll ever do that. You know, do you, with that feeling and where you are in your career and your age now, 
are you writing songs with that in mind of going, okay, I got to write this a little differently so I can perform it so I can actually hit the note. Hell no. Listen to this. That's basically wow. the whole album. That's awesome. amazing. I can't wait that's, to hear that. Yeah. So that sounds like um, a pretty exciting summer for you. I think you're going to have great time with the Panther guys. Those guys are really funny and yeah. super cool. I was the one that texted Michael Starr. I was like, let's do some shows. Two that's days later, great. they're like, you want to go to the UK? We're like, fuck yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, so for all of you listeners... The new album seven drops May 5th. So you yep. can pre-order it on Kip's website, I'm sure. Are you doing meet and greets on this yeah. tour? Yeah, okay, you can so. do all go to wingertoband.com. We got new merch. It's the 35th anniversary of the first album, the 30th anniversary of the of the of the third album. And it's a new album. We got we got merch, new merch there. You can get all our tour dates. There's VIP um just push the VIP button if you want to meet us. It's fun to meet those people that actually do that because they're like the really avid fans. And they're the ones that, that uh, I appreciate talking to the most, you know. What's, um, the, what's the craziest gift you've ever gotten from a fan? Excellent question. I haven't gotten any that many crazy gifts. The Japanese really load you up with the gifts. Um, but I've never gotten like a, a car or anything. Feel free. So, so he's <laughs> <laughs> That's you'll, nice. you'll you'll name the next out. You'll name your eighth album after the person who gives you a car as a gift. Exactly. <laughs> so there you go. For any of you guys that want to do a meet and greet, you can sign up online, hit the VIP, get a car for for Kip. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Any Kip, particular Kip model that you like? Well, it's got to be German. Okay. Mercedes, BMW, the end. Okay. All right. So German engineering and you guys will be friends for life. You'll probably even, you know, I don't know. Would you sign the dashboard of their car? Oh, absolutely. I'll sign, <laughs> I'll sign anything. <laughs> and I have. <laughs> oh, I can uh, only imagine. That's Kip, crazy. Th Kip, this has been fascinating, especially the, yeah. the, the classical discussion. I mean, I, I knew that part of your career, but it really was fascinating to dive into how you approached it and and yeah. and and what that meant to you. Yeah, wonderful Thanks. stuff. I appreciate that. Nice to talk to you guys, and thanks for taking the time to you know talk about all of the stuff going on. Tommy, that was uh, for me. As I said at the very end there with Kip, I was I loved the discussion about his classical side. Yeah. Really, I mean. I've been a winger fan since the first album and I've Me seen too. them many times and I've got their albums. Um, but, and I, and I know of his classical career and I actually think I might have a classical CD by Kip here as well. Um, but just hearing from him, how he approached that. I mean, that's, that's a big, that had to be scary to say, I'm going to go from 
hard rock metal to classical and with no idea how you're going to be received. Well, and to be successful at it. I mean, to yeah, be to get a, for a Grammy, I mean, yeah, yep. that's pretty huge. I just found him to be, and I mean, I know, I've never met him. So I, I don't know how, inter- I mean, I've met him like a couple of times, like, hi, how are you? I've introduced myself, but I've never had a conversation. I guess I wasn't, I'm surprised at how introspective he is. And, and how he really dials into the passion of, of his love of music. And you can't not respect something like that. I, don't, I nope. thought it was a great conversation. So I hope all of you guys listening enjoyed something different because that was different. Yeah, that was, that was very different. Yeah, we had a little kiss discussion there. But, you know, we also had a lot of classical discussion, which... Don't let that scare you away. I mean, as we've always said here, step outside of your comfort zone. Well, yeah. And I th- and who wants to just listen to one band or one type of music? I, I like having variety. The main reason I don't listen to classical is because no one's really ever shown educated, shown shown you. Yeah, same, same for same for me. I've never had a family member um or a very close friend who you know is like you got to listen to this let me let me tell you the difference between this and what to listen to um yeah you know that's that's all that sort of held me back because I kind of felt like classical music you need to be a little more and I I don't mean this in the way it's gonna you've got to be more educated about the music itself I think that makes sense I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. No, no more. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know. But music is a feeling too. So it's more, it's, it's like, like I've said a hundred times before, you are the most open-minded of anyone I know when it comes to music, because you listen to so much on Spotify while you're working and you allow it to say, Hey, you might like this because you like that. Back in the day, like we've discussed as well, someone will bring a record over and go, hey, you got to check out the new Deep Purple or whatever it is. With classical, I don't have any friends that listen I don't to have. This. I don't have that. I don't have the recommendation engine around me to steer me to what I should listen to. Going, oh, if you love, if you love Black Sabbath, you've got to listen to this classical performance because right. this is Black Sabbath. Right. You know, so it'll be interesting to to dive in and, and spend some time listening to some of what he created. And then I'm looking forward to hearing the new record, because every time I see him live, they're absolutely fantastic. They really are. And I think it's because you have the commonality of a lot of those songs where they were more popular than just you buying the record and knowing them. People that are more casual fans are reacting to them. And that makes a big difference. And what I didn't say that I probably, well, it doesn't matter that I didn't say it, but there is bands, there are bands like, uh, there was a guy, I don't remember his name, Tony Harnell, maybe. I'm oh, not yeah, sure. from, T, from TNT. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea who that guy was. And I'd never heard him before. I didn't know TNT. And I'm telling you, during his performance, even though he worked his ass off and he sounded great and could really sing, the place cleared out. You know, and then when Winger comes on, uh, it was Keel next. When Keel comes on, ton of people there because they know so many of Keel's songs. And it was like that for the rest of the night. And I see that all the time at these festivals where some of these old bands like XYZ, they get together again, but it's like, I never heard any of your songs. Right, right. Winger's one of those bands where you'll go, oh, yeah, I've heard of them. I don't really know their music until you go, 
Oh, yeah, I remember that song. Oh, yeah, I remember that song. Yeah, that song, too. Oh, yeah, I've heard that one as well. That's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, homework for this week's episode. Um, I'm going to really challenge you. Go listen to Kip Winger's classical music and let us know what you think. Or if you've already been a fan of it and listened to it, let us know what you love about it. Um, and, And question number two, if you are a fan of classical music, suggest some songs that KISS fans, heavy metal fans, should check out some classical songs we should check out that will go, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah, because I was really impressed with his depth of knowledge of different types of music and artists. That was, to me, that's fascinating because that's a lot of the stuff he was talking about I've never heard of before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's your homework. Let's focus it on the classical aspect of, of this week's discussion. And Lisa, Kip's, Kip's classical work, and just recommend if you're a classical fan, just recommend some great classical tracks for hard rock metal fans to check out. Mm-hmm. And Lisa will join us, I believe, next week. She's doing something with the kids this week. Mark, I don't know if he's going to be recovered from his surgery or not by the time we uh, tape again, but we wish him well. I know he'll be standing a lot. You guys figure it out. You're, you're, you're setting Mark up to get a bunch of instant messages, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. And nothing makes me happier than my fucking mailbox is full. What the fuck? If you want, if you want to send Mark a get well package, send him a, a blow up rubber donut. Yes. Yeah, he loves donuts. Um, all right. That 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 that's your homework. We will see everybody next week. Three sides of the coin. We're out of here. You have something to say? Leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call 320-515. Voices for three sides of the coin. Provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.